The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. This morning, we're going to be reading from Isaiah, chapter 52, in verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 53. So if you would please stand for the reading of the Holy Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the holy word of God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors 
if you haven't been here before. Um, yeah, please um, pray with me. Lord God, we're so thankful to be here on this Resurrection Sunday. We know that in Jesus, you are making all things new. And we are so thrilled that that newness includes us. We are not bound to who we once were. We are not bound to keep repeating the same empty cycles of momentary joy and misery, but you have something lasting for us. Lord, would you show us that more clearly this morning in these words? Jesus, in the, in the book of John, you said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We ask for insight this morning to understand those words more clearly, not from the Gospel of John, but from Isaiah. So be our helper now, Holy Spirit. Be our true teacher. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Do you like puzzles? I'm kind of a big jigsaw puzzle nerd. So every time uh, there's a holiday, I like to get a new jigsaw puzzle, and I put it out you know, for all the family, any extended family who's walking by in between conversations. They can sit down, put some of it together, and you know, I, I put the border together first, and I get some colors organized to help people out. Um, those sorts of puzzles are fun for me because you've got this box, and you know everything you need is right inside this box. And you know that if you just keep going, you're going to get to a solution. That picture is going to come out clear in the end. That's a fun puzzle. But you know, puzzles in life aren't fun like that. You're not guaranteed a solution. You're not guaranteed that you are going to see the picture clearly at all. You may never see that picture that's actually driving what you're experiencing. Well, this morning I want you to realize that we have a choice in life between constantly running into disorienting puzzles or accepting one central puzzle that makes everything else fall into place. What do I mean? Well, if you think about it, human existence is surrounded by mysteries that just aren't as simple as observation and measurement. Questions like, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Does anything I do matter? How do I explain the presence of evil in the world? How do I explain feelings of hope and joy and peace? Why are there so many reports of a spiritual world all around us? What happens when I die? Why have there been times when it seems like I've been kept alive for a reason? And why can't I seem to change? See, we all live with this certain tension and, and we have to push on despite these unknowns all around us that every day they have this dull tug on our emotions just in the back of our minds. But I'll riddle you an even greater mystery still. How could a person be fully man and fully God? How could the divine one suffer and be humiliated? How could someone be both a priest and the sacrifice? What does and what must Jesus mean for you and for me 
today, 21 centuries after his earthly work is finished. See, if you embrace this paradox, Jesus, the suffering servant, then all other mysteries come into clarity. We either accept one paradox at the center of our lives or we're left with confusion in many areas of life. Let me say that again. We either accept one central paradox and base our lives around that or we are left with confusion in many areas of life. And if we're honest with ourselves, doing nothing with Jesus just isn't an option. Why? Because of these words of Isaiah. These words exist. They were written over 600 years before Christ appeared to fulfill them. And yet the precision of their description is astounding. God placed these words here so that people would have to deal with Jesus. He placed these words here so that you today would have to come to terms with Jesus. These words ask each of us, what will you do with the reality of the suffering servant? These words are written by Isaiah. He was a prophet of the one true God in uh, the last part of the 8th century, um, first part of the 7th century BC. So we've got one artist's portrayal here, not, not because that's what Isaiah actually looked like, but, you know, artists think Isaiah was cool, so you should too. Um, and you see that kind of far-off gaze that he has there, and that gives you some notion of what prophets did. They received words and visions directly from God and they wrote them down for the benefit of the people. And a prophet like that, the type that wrote scripture, that was a job that only existed until the coming of Christ because Jesus is our final authoritative prophet, priest, and king. Well, this poem by Isaiah is broken into five stanzas and we've got a broad outline to show you if you're into that sort of thing. Feel free to write it down or if you want, take a snapshot with your phone there. And we'll bring that outline back up every time we move to a new stanza as well, so you can kind of see where we're at. And the first stanza is like a broad introduction, or better yet, it's like an overture. Have you ever seen those old musical movies? You know, something like Singing in the Rain or The Sound of Music. They've got an overture at the start. And in that overture, you're going to get snippets of every musical theme that you're going to be exposed to throughout the movie. And chapter 52, verses 13 through 15 are just like that. They are an overture for this servant song. And the overture is spoken by God himself. He starts by saying, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. Does that sound familiar? Those same words were used in chapter 42 when we saw the first servant song a few weeks ago. Behold, it, it means he wants us to look and to keep our gaze fixed on what he's about to describe. He wants us to look in wonder about this picture that's going to be unfurled for us. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Well, that's as would be expected, right? If God is going to work uniquely through a person, we would hope that that servant would be the epitome of wisdom and would have a certain glory about them. In fact, these adjectives, lifted up, exalted, these words are used elsewhere in Isaiah only to describe God himself. So the way that this servant is being described right from the start is very honored. But that's just what makes the next line so confusing. We read that as many as were astonished at you, 
This is sort of a, a parenthetical thought. It says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So you just don't expect a champion for humanity to be disturbingly marred. You don't expect for a hero to appear shocking, disturbing. What could that mean, we're left to wonder. But we're also told that this very grotesque factor that makes the servant astonishing, it's the very same dynamic that is going to make the nations pay attention. Verse 15 says, So, like in this way, he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. The word sprinkle here, it refers to priestly work. So just like the priests in ancient Israel would take the blood from the sacrifice and they would sprinkle the altar with it. Or just like Moses, when the first covenant was being initiated, he took blood from a sacrifice and actually sprinkled it on the crowd. And in the same way, in a greater way, this servant is going to cleanse and bring into right relationship with God many nations. Many nations. And we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out from Jerusalem. It has transformed whole cultures. Emperors, kings, queens have been brought to their knees. Czars, presidents, prime ministers, even dictators still shut their mouths because of him. Even those who disown Jesus, they can't account for the continuing spread of his work and its impact throughout the world. They just don't know what to do with him. And neither do we. This, this mixture of exaltation with deep suffering, it makes us uncomfortable. We don't know where to place it. And so this overture gives us that broad picture of a paradox lying at the center of history. And its effects are continuing to, to ripple through civilization. And it leaves us asking, okay, so if the effects of this servant are so great, how could he possibly be overlooked? Or ignored. And the next stanza shows us how. The servant would not come as a sort of intimidating champion of our imaginations. He would be the hero we needed, not the one we wanted. And that's why people still find it so hard to believe. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Throughout Isaiah, the arm of the Lord represents his powerful action. The arm of the Lord is his, uh, how he's going to save his people, how he's going to conquer all evil. So if you look just a page before it, at chapter 52, verse 10, it says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The picture is that the Lord is just, he's rolling up his sleeve, he's getting to work, he's going to save his people and destroy his enemies. But who would believe that this servant is the person through whom he would do that? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. A young plant isn't stable. A young plant isn't imposing. Uh, a root out of dry ground, it's easily overlooked. It could be stepped on. It could be withered in the heat. So we're getting a picture of, uh, of an upbringing of weakness, vulnerability, commonality. And that exactly was the upbringing of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, 
among a poor and oppressed people. And he had no particular beauty. It's funny because whenever uh, Jesus is portrayed on the screen, the actor usually is a beautiful person, like great hair, stunning beard. Because we live in a culture where physical beauty is almost considered a prerequisite for greatness. But according to this passage, if we just saw Jesus in a room full of other Middle Eastern men, we probably wouldn't have been able to pick him out from the crowd. And the strangeness of his effectiveness, it's not just because of how common his origins were. There's something more. We read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So the intrigue continues. Why so much sadness? Why so much burden? Why was he hated and hid from? And you know, it's fitting that this second stanza seems to be voiced by insiders who now accept the servant, but at first had discredited him like everyone else. They're honestly reflecting on that past attitude that they had toward the servant. And that's cool because we can also latch on, we should also latch on to that we language. We esteemed him not, right? That's true of all of us at one point until the spirit opened our eyes. Because natural humanity sees no value here. And maybe you're in that position this morning. Does all this talk about Jesus seem burdensome or annoying or irrelevant? Then own up to the fact that this passage is actually describing you. Naturally, you have no place for a savior like this. You don't hold him in any high esteem. You despise and you reject the notion that your life should be centered on the Christ. That's your starting place. But it's not the right perspective. The next stanza tells us the truth. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely emphasizes something unexpected was actually the case. We esteemed him not, and yet he actually did accomplish the rescue we needed, but didn't know we needed. He took upon himself everything that mars our lives. We thought something was wrong with him. Actually, everything was wrong with us. Yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. We just didn't care. What did his suffering matter to us? But he was, and he is, the the one, the only one, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When the nails pierced the hands and the feet of Jesus, fixing him to the cross on which he'd be executed, something profound and utterly essential was happening in the spiritual realm. Substitution. For thousands of years, the Jewish sacrificial system with its animal sacrifices had taught the people that the only escape from the consequences of the evil inside of us was substitution. The cost of sin had to be endured by innocent blood on our behalf. And this suffering servant did away with all those preparatory instructional types and shadows of animal sacrifice. He fulfilled them all. He is the only substitute for his people. His punishment on our behalf brought peace and healing. Peace with God and peace with each other. And peace here means not just the absence of conflict. Peace here means this holistic well-being, an existence of tranquility 
even in the midst of this world's ongoing brokenness. And in fact, that peace, if you've ever seen it, that peace and healing that you find in true Christians, that is an incredible testimony to the reality of what Jesus has accomplished. It's not that Christians don't have troubles or conflict with the world around them. In fact, a lot of times those troubles are intensified because of their commitment to Christ. But the troubles are reframed. Reframed according to a perspective that can have eternity in view. Not just a few decades when we try to get by. And also those troubles are reframed according to the knowledge that though we are weak, yes, we are weak, our suffering can always be redemptive just as his suffering for us was. If God is for us, who can stand against us in any meaningful way? Now, without Christ, we're always chasing after the good life. And there are definitely some highs that we can achieve. But we always end up, in the end, disappointed, stricken, bereaved. But the suffering servant made our burdens his own, and what we get in him is peace and healing. Of course, you won't see your need for substitution if you don't believe that you have a need for peace and healing. If you think that you can still attain and hold on to that good, like, that good life of your own making, you're not going to want this. And that's why Isaiah cuts to the root of the matter in verse 6. And he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the Bible is emphatic that something is wrong with Humanity, without exception, there's this moral cancer that we're born with. Even the people that you see with spotless images, they're doing the right things for twisted motives. And so straying sheep is actually an excellent picture of us because it's our nature to wander off to harmful places. We act like sheep. But we can't just blame our herd mentality. We're individually culpable. And even our secret thoughts bear witness that we are not the person that we know we should be. The next stanza seems to be voiced by Isaiah himself, and it reads as if Isaiah had this front row seat for the trial and death and burial of Jesus. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Now, the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels show us that the court proceedings were irregular and they were unjust, corrupt, um, because the one who had only spoken truth, he had spoken truth in love, he is being set up by these false witnesses. And also, Jesus' physical treatment was unjust. Even before execution, his treatment was brutal, demonically cruel. And we should be thankful that we have this prophecy to show us that this appointed suffering was the path of the righteous one. That has implications for us. Whenever you are suffering unjustly, you have a God who sees and knows. You have a Savior who has gone to those very places before you. How much does it compound your suffering when even your closest friends don't really understand what you're going through? Well, Jesus told his disciples a number of times the path he was on that he had to go to the cross and they either were unable to understand or didn't want to. And so you can imagine when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest, knowing he's going to be murdered for his people and yet his closest friends can't even stay awake with him for one hour. 
yet this is why he came. And every aspect of Jesus' suffering makes him our sympathetic leader and high priest. Some favorite song lyrics of mine say, If you've ever been humiliated, misunderstood, ridiculed, and hated, if you've ever gone through hell, faced a devil no one else could even see, my friend, you're in good company. And similarly, 1 Peter 4 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the example he set for us. That's the power he gave us as we live in him by faith. Jesus wasn't passive about his suffering. He trusted in God's purpose for it. And so we read that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We know that Jesus could have opened his mouth, right? He could tell the raging waves to be still. He could command Lazarus to come out of the grave. He could teach with authority. He could pronounce woe on the self-righteous leaders. He could scare merchants and moneylenders out of the temple. He could order demons to depart. And yet now, at this moment, He's silent with purpose. Notice that Jesus is compared to a sheep here. Above, we were compared to, the, to sheep. We were the wayward sheep. And, and so the implication is that we're the ones who acted like dumb animals, and yet he was treated as one all the way to the slaughter. And in all of this, we know from the Gospels that Jesus was clear-headed, he was in control, he was decided, accepting he was submitted and that's a big reason why the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin because only a consenting will like this voluntary sufferer can be a substitute for a rebellious will such as what we have so the suffering servant jesus wanted to take our place we read that as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So we get this picture that none of his peers could make sense of what was happening. And in the Gospel of Luke, there's this account of the resurrected Jesus, and he's kind of incognito, and he meets some of his friends on the road. They don't recognize him. It's dark. I don't know, maybe he has a cloak on or something. But um, he, he just asked them about what had happened in Jerusalem. They didn't know about the resurrection. You got to think that Jesus was maybe like holding back laughter this whole time. Uh, and they said about Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, they, they just hadn't considered, they just couldn't. Even after his death, they couldn't see that his life had been cut off out of a good design. And he was killed next to wicked criminals, just as verse 9 says. And then he was buried by a rich man. You know, usually the manner of one's burial says something about that person's life. And that's why historians still make a big deal about how someone with the genius of Mozart, after he died, he was just tossed in a pauper's grave. Well, similarly, when you see a convicted criminal executed in the most shameful of ways, then receive an honored burial, it, it kind of leaves you scratching your head and asking, well, who then was this? 
And that's exactly how Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea honored Jesus when they asked the Roman governor for his body. They carried him themselves to the expensive tomb in a nearby garden that Joseph had likely meant for himself to use one day. So we see these shadows of what would be over 600 years later. Isaiah's poem or song started with this enigma. And now in the last stanza, we're going to see most clearly the solution. Why is all of this happening? Is the servant figure just kind of stumbling into this mistreatment? And are we simply explaining some sort of makeshift solution to why Jesus had to die? No, verse 10 tells us plainly, 600 years before Christ, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So God the Father designed this plan of suffering for the servant Jesus. But as we saw with his silent cooperation in the last stanza, and also we saw in the very first line, behold, my servant shall act wisely, we see that this is a joint commitment. Both God the Father and God the Son are committed to this rescue mission. The Father planned it, and then Jesus wisely saw that this was the only way to reconcile rebellious humanity to our holy God. So it's the servant's soul, his whole being, that's making an offering for guilt. The servant is both the offering himself and he's the priest sprinkling the nations with the atonement blood from that offering. And that's unlike any sacrifice that had come before. It's unlike any sacrifice that could come afterward. And another major way in which Christ's work completes and, and outstretches any category Astonishingly, this sacrifice does not remain dead. It says, when his soul has made an offering, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So this is where we move from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Death doesn't do away with this servant. The one who is crushed under the will of the Lord somehow lives on and continues to shepherd his church causing it to prosper more and more as people from across cultures and across time find righteousness in him. And because of his resurrection, those who are covered by his offering then become his offspring. We see this in Galatians 3. It says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and you are heirs according to the promise. This result is very, very satisfying for the risen Christ. This ingathering of sons and daughters, this is a big part of the joy that was set before him in going to the cross. He knew it would end this way. And that's why it says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus knew his Bible. He had read passages like Leviticus and the Messianic Psalms. He'd read the servant songs of Isaiah, these very words we're talking about. Jesus knew them. He had read them. And so he knew that the only way to bring humanity back to God was through his death. And because of his obedience, God the Father says, therefore I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil. Now you may have noticed those words we put that slide up um, that has verse 12 on it. Um, you may have noticed that the words that I just said that are on the slide differ a bit from what we had in the ESV reading, which says, I will divide him a portion with the many 
and divide the spoil with the strong. I'll spare you the Hebrew grammar lesson, but really the argument is over what to do with a single preposition that can be translated a number of ways, including idiomatically. Um, so, so the words I've substituted in are from the Christian Standard Version, which I think here has correctly translated the many and the mighty as what the spoils are. So the victorious conqueror is being given authority over the many and over the mighty as his reward. And that ties in nicely with how at the beginning of the song we saw that kings will shut their mouths because of him and he will sprinkle many nations. It also fits with Psalm 2 in which the Lord says to the anointed son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, as this passage nears its finale, we see the one who was despised and rejected, that he has been vindicated, he's been honored beyond comparison. Unparalleled humiliation is rewarded with unparalleled exaltation. And that outcome demands not only our amazement, but also our imitation. If you are in Christ by faith, follow the leader. See every opportunity to serve and to be not esteemed. See it as a chance to entrust yourself to the God who raises up the lowly righteous ones beyond anything that this world can offer. Are you willing to suffer and do hard things as a servant of Christ because he has asked you to pick up your cross and follow him? Loving others stubbornly, even when it hurts. Forgiving again, and again, even when it feels purposeless. Asking for forgiveness, even when it feels humiliating. Placing yourself in terrifying opportunities for the sake of Christ. Choosing courage over fear, even if at times your fears do come true. Let God be glorified through his lifting up of you after you've trusted him to walk with you through that appointed valley. Because of the servant's humility, God would exalt him. And the end of verse 12 spells out exactly what that service was. It says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He made intercession. He goes between a holy God and a corrupted humanity and he makes many to be accounted righteous. It's like accounting. You exchange categories and cancel it out. Because of the cross and resurrection, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. So this song began and ended with a victory note, but in the middle we saw deep pain and humiliation at the core, and that brings us back to the question, what will you do with this paradox? Jesus is here presented as the wise sage, the priest, the sacrifice, the servant, the sufferer, the conqueror, the intercession. In him alone is our corruption cleansed. In him alone is an outside righteousness given to us. So this message is for broken people everywhere. If you will see your need as one who has gone astray, then Jesus has accomplished everything you need. Here's the thing, though. If this really is the central paradox, the mystery around which we're to center our lives, then there's no going halfway. 
You're either in or you're choosing to stay out. You're either counted as his offspring and counted as righteous, and you're being shaped into God's servant in his likeness, or you're left to yourself. Yes, you're left to your own will to do as you please. You're also left to your own lack of peace, lack of healing. You're left to the fruits of your own actions. Now, maybe you weren't even expecting to be here this morning and and you feel a bit caught off guard by this passage. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, there's actually a story of a person who was caught off guard by this passage. It's an African government official, and he comes across these very words from Isaiah 53. And um, a Christian goes up to him in his chariot and asks him, do you understand what you've been reading? And the Ethiopian says, no. And, and then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this very scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And on that day, the government official believed. He gave his life to Christ and he went on his way rejoicing. That's exactly what I'm trying to do for you today. You have a decision to make. In these words of Isaiah, the good news of Jesus Christ is confronting you. Will you receive this substitution? Will you trust in the suffering servant to be the foundation and the centerpiece of your life? Will you go on your way rejoicing? And so our Father, we pray that by your mercy and by your kindness, you would draw many to Christ this morning. We pray that you would overturn lives in the best of ways. We pray that you would cause this picture of the Savior to disturb us out of blindness, out of complacency. We thank you that we have seen the servant as he is in these pages, and we confess that what seems like the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. We confess that what appeared as your weakness is stronger than the strength of men. And so we we declare, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen.